Yay. Hallelujah for the rain. Oh, are we ever. You know, what's interesting is it, rain, it rained here right in this area, but my husband said this, he went up a little bit further north and it's dry as a bone. So, I mean, it's weird how it can just rain on you in one place and then it's nothing somewhere else. Boy, Lord, rain everywhere. We need it desperately, but especially on those uh, reservoirs to be filled up, right? Okay. So, all right, let's see. Let's get started. All right, what we want to do this morning is we want to do a setting of our context using Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3 as the beginning. Now, we talked about this last week, and I shared it with you from the book, that one of the things she said in here was that um, when you are working in a historical book, that you do not set context by doing an overview in the typical way that you would like with a... um, a um, letter in the New Testament, like the God, in, anything in the New Testament area, those books like, like um, uh, Corinthians or Colossians or First or Second Timothy or Peter, any of those instructional books like that. You set context for those books by going in and reading the whole book, picking out what the major theme is that eventually will rise to the surface because it's repeated a lot. And then you look specifically, once you've identified that major word that flows through, why did the author bring that subject up and what is his goal in in writing there, right? But in historical books, you don't do that. Now, I I never knew this before. Now I know it, and I am very excited to know this because it explains now why so often precept does not do that in some of their studies. But it had never been explained, but in this new printing of a book that I found... It says, remember, the overview is usually reserved for letters, that kind of a typical overview. So when you're reading chapter one and two of your how-to study book, that kind of an overview is reserved for letters, okay? For history and prophecy, which, by the way, what is our literary form for Ezekiel? History and prophecy. Do you also acknowledge that it's history? Okay. Why do we know it's history? What are the tell signs that it's historical? It gives you some time, some dates. What else? Real places. So places and dates and times and events and certain names of specific people. So some real detail in there, right? It makes it very obvious that this is not imagery when he speaks about by the river. Now it's Chebar. Kbar, however you want to pronounce that word. Everybody's got their own way. Who, who, who actually knows how to pronounce that word? K. So Kbar. Okay, so Kbar or Kbar. All right, so w- when the scripture says in this year of this king at this place, then you know that's historical, correct? Okay, so we have history in Ezekiel, but it's also blended with what, according to what we saw in chapter 1? Visions. And visions are what? They're prophecy and it done through imagery. So, wow, we've got a blend here that definitely meets this criteria. And he says, you do not handle them in the same way. They are, they are best handled chapter by chapter. So what you do is you just dive in, you start to read, and you look for, for telling signs about your context, who your author is, possibly something about your recipients as well. You're going to look for for telling signs about the historical setting 
the time factor on a, if you wanted to timeline it, right? So did we find that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 this week? A bit of all of those? Yes, we did. So that's what we're going to draw out to the surface and try to get these things concretely on a piece of paper. And that's the starting point. All we're going to do today is get it started, okay? All right, so... That kind of addresses uh, setting the context. So today what we want to do now first is to start with whatever is most obvious in a place to start. Um, When you are reading any book, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, history, or letters, what is the most obvious in any book that you're going to begin to read in the Word of God? The The author. So we're going to start with the author, which is why that's my first column. We're going, to, we're going to begin by simply saying, what are some of the points, some of the things that you drew out? Now, eventually, Kay actually tells you to start a list on the author, correct? So tell me, what are some things out of chapter one that you learn about the author? Okay, he's a priest. Okay, and give me the reference on that. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right, what else do you learn about him? Very good. Among among the exiles in one one, right? Okay. Are you all seeing what I'm doing up here? For those of you who are new to this, when you give an answer, please give me your scripture reference where you found that answer so that we can make sure we note it on the board. And the the purpose for this is so that all of us collectively agree with the, the facts that we are listing. We don't want to list a fact and have it be something that is either subjectively concluded by us or interpretation by us. We want to make sure that we actually get the facts up there, okay? Okay, now that gives us, that information that he's, by the river Kabar, gives us what kind of information? About the historical setting. So So we're going to put over here underneath the historical setting that Ezekiel was by... Uh, the river Kabar, C H E B A R, and and it goes on to say, and it, among the those exiles, right? right? Among the exiles, that gives us a whole lot of information right there, and that is in in chapter one, verse one. Now, I want to go, come back to this in a few minutes. And we're going we're gonna to develop this a little bit m- more about the idea of the river Kebar, okay? He was probably 30 years old. He said in the 30th year, he was supposed to be a priest. Okay, in the 30th year. Now, we can't totally conclude that, but what, what did Kay, now this is really good opportunity to kind of throw out to to their information about the process of inductive study again. In inductive study, when you come across something like this, a statement that says in the 30th year, and you're not quite sure what it is, right? You're not certain what it is. You certainly can go to a commentary, correct? But will the commentary not give you what he's concluded? Yes. Yes. Okay, and remember, commentaries are written by men, 
And so you have to take it also with just a slight grain of salt. Certainly there are some commentaries that you will come to trust more than others and use them more frequently. However, you don't really want to fully de depend on just a commentary to give you an answer, right? So what would you say would be a good strategy before you drew a conclusion on what you think that 30th year meant? Okay, maybe looking at other scripture. Now, Kay took us to another scripture or two, Number didn't she? Four. Yes. And it said that most men were, um, <clears throat> did their priesthood or whatever between ages 30 and 50. Okay. Okay, so, so the first thing we do is, Kay, Kay does give us, now this is the benefit of having curriculum to follow. And if you didn't have curriculum to follow, however, this would be a little more challenging, would it not? But I want you to, I want to train you to do the, um, the critical thinking on this, okay? So what I want you to think of is, before you would know to go to Numbers 4, which Kay told us, which was awesome, but if you didn't know to go to Numbers 4, the first thing you would need to do is, would be to formulate some, some thoughts, some possibilities of what that 30th year might be speaking about, correct? Mm -hmm. So you would make a list of what might be some things that you might think of when you read the opening of a book like this. The 30th year. Uh, something pertaining to the exile, Okay. Perfect. Good. Okay, so you, you actually jumped to the conclusion of where I was going to take us, so that's exactly right. What you want to do is make a list of potential thoughts of what it might be pertaining to, and then you're going to systematically either eliminate or continue to strengthen a potential interpretation of what that might be speaking of. Are you following me? So that in the end, Kay listed about three different possibilities. One was related to the exile. One was related to uh, the Babylonian king himself, right? Because this is, where, where are they? They're by the, liver, the river Kabar, and they're in the land of what? Chaldeans. The Chaldeans. And therefore, eventually you come to find out that that is referring to what land? Babylon. Babylon, right? And so he, you connect it to that, so you start to say, okay, well, maybe this 30th year has something to do with the Babylonian king, maybe it has something to do with the exile, because the exiles are mentioned. And then the other one is, since we're speaking about the author here at, in the beginning also, maybe it's something related to the author himself, correct? So the first, the other two points that were brought up as potentials, we, we as Craig says, we eliminate because it, does, it doesn't quite fit in there. Uh, not only that, but in particular when you're speaking about Nebuchadnezzar himself, and you'd have to go back to the predecessor before Nebuchadnezzar, which was his father, right? Nebuchadnezzar, or whatever is how you pronounce that. Um, the inf would you say, in the context of what you read, or have read, I should say, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, is there any additional connection to that, that, to that original king, the 30th year, to, of Nebuchadnezzar? Is he mentioned or brought? No. So it almost seems like that would be a stretch to go there, correct? So you eliminate that one. Now what's left is something pertaining to Ezekiel himself, right? right. And then Kay then gave us a reference where we could go back and do it. Now she did this for our ease. Now 
if we didn't have that, we would have to have the disciplines in ourselves to say, I need to research about him. What are some other things that he's told us about himself? Well, one of them is in verse 3 that he is a priest. And so that's where Kay and her staff began to go back and say, well, let's look at the priesthood, the fact that he identifies himself in that way, and let's see if there's any information there that might explain that 30th year. Are you starting to see the critical thinking processes? Okay, so that connects the dots. I'm hoping that's explaining to some of, some of you who have not done inductive work, this is really new to you. For the rest of you, you're going, yeah, Katie, go on, right? Uh, yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> and he's the son of Buzzy or Buzzy? Yeah, the son of Buzzy. Now, did anybody look at that, be him being the son of Buzzy? Did anybody look that up at all? Okay. Well, if you had, you would find it really, the only thing you learn about the son of Buzzy is that he is the father of Ezekiel. <laughs> That's all you learn. Because <laughs> there's really nothing else, uh, as, as far as I could find, uh, that was meaningful or said anything other than that he was the father of Ezekiel. So, so it's interesting that he mentions his father, but that's all, all it does. I think it just distinguishes him, however, among other po- possible, possible Ezekiels maybe in the future or something, other recordings. Okay. So at uh, Numbers 4, what was the rest of that? Um, is that Jennifer? Is that, okay, Jennifer, what was it? Is Numbers 4, what were the verse reference? One through four. Thank you. I couldn't remember what the verses were. Okay. So you put that cross-reference in there. And in the 30th year, and we're going to just put a question mark on here and say 30th year of his life maybe then, meaning equal his age? Possibly. But with the caveat of a question mark, because we're not, we can't say that for absolute certain. But what we do know is we can move on from there. If you don't get buried in that and get stuck right there, you could get stuck in verse 1, couldn't you? And just never leave there. (laughs) But the best thing to do is when you have things like that and you're not sure, keep moving. The reason is you're going to find out whether or not that is super-duper important or whether it's minor. And if it's super-duper important, what do you think is going to happen in the book as the whole as it goes along? More information about that's going to come up. And if it's not that important, it's just going to be dropped and, and you're just going to move on. So that means for you and I, we can release it. Okay? And that's pretty hard for some people, some temperaments like mine, because I just like, I want to know, right? So I can't move on until I know. But the problem is, is sometimes you have to move on to find out whether you need it, whether it's important or not, and whether or not you need information on that. So in the 30th year, tells us, though, a little bit, something about this author he thinks is important for you to understand. He's a priest. He's among the exiles. Now, the exiles, what do we know about the exiles? As he went on in chapters 1 through 3, does he explain about who the exiles might be? The Jews, the sons of Israel, right? So you should have marked your... All of your references to the exiles, to the sons of uh, Israel, with some kind of a symbol so that that stands out, correct? But now, so now we see that this man, Ezekiel, is affiliated with Israel, with Israel and with the sons of Israel. So we're already learning quite a bit about him just in this little bit of work that we've done, right? The next thing that you see about him is what? That he saw visions of God. Very cool, okay? He saw visions of God. 
Now, um, interesting, if he saw visions of God, is that saying that he saw visions from God or he saw visions about God or he saw visions seeing God? Does anybody know? Of God. Of God. Of God. Is it of, of God meaning he saw God himself or no. visions that came from God yeah. or visions about God? Okay, maybe all of the above. We, we don't know for sure at this point, do we? We just know vision, we saw visions of God. Now, if you know the original language, you might be able to pin that down a little more carefully. Um, I will find out tonight. I know I, we have uh, a couple of scholars, although Craig hasn't said anything. Did you not look that one up, Craig? Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay. And you have to, by context, determine... You have... By, there you go. That's what I wanted to draw out of you. It is by context, eventually, that you figure out what that meant. Right now, when you're first opening it up, you may or may not know for sure what that statement exactly means. You just know it's visions and it has something to do with God, okay? It's either from him, about him, or that you saw him. And as you move on in chapter 1, what do you see about him seeing God? Is there a portion of his vision where he actually sees God? He sees the Lord. Where, and where does he see the Lord in his vision? On the throne. On the throne. Right. Yeah. Now, when you think about the idea of God on the throne, and, and the imagery there is, what were the, the, the uh, steps that we saw there in that chapter 1 concerning that vision? There were kind of layers almost, right? And the, the, first, the first part of the vision was of whom? Those four living beings, right? So there are four beings, and I'm going to do a little visual with that in a couple of minutes, but don't let me forget, because I want to bring four of you up here, and we're going to try to visualize it, and you're each going to get to be a living being. Okay, and so we're going to do the four living beings, and then above the four living beings is what? An expanse, and above the expanse is a throne, and who's sitting upon the throne? And this is a figure of, of a man. In the conclusion, the very last verse of chapter 1 tells you about that vision that he sees of that figure. It's what? <laughs> Dude, very good. <laughs> All right, tell me. <laughs> Poor guy. He's like me. Can't get that thing to shut off. Um, what does it say? Of, uh-huh. And he Okay, and such was the appearance of the likeness of what? What was he looking at? The glory of the Lord is what it says, right? The glory of the Lord is what he saw. So we see then when he sees about the visions of God, can you say that it could possibly be actually saying that he saw God? Potentially, okay? One, but we're not done with Ezekiel, are we? How many chapters do we still have ahead? A lot. So we've got lots more time to build on this. So what I want to say to you is don't lock yourself into one conclusion right up front, but put that down in the back of your mind as one potential and then move on. Can you see how much work there is to lay in context? You've got to be patient with yourself. So we saw visions of God. And what else does it tell us about Ezekiel in his relationship with, with the Lord here in chapter 1? Mm-hmm. Yes, the hand of the Lord came upon him. I love that. Don't you want the hand of the Lord to come upon you? 
in your life and in your ministry work. The hand of the Lord came upon him. So that gives you some insight too then about him, does it not? What does it kind of show you about him as a man? That he has a relationship, obviously, with the Lord. That the Lord himself actually uh, interacts on a very personal level with him, right? And he says concerning him, what does he say about um, how the Lord communicates with him? I love that. The word of the Lord came expressly to him. Tell me what you think about that. Okay. Obviously, he was someone, especially when you make a contrast with what he tells us later about the rest of these exiles, that what, what, were the, what was their relationship with God in relationship to the Lord speaking to them? They were rebellious. They were stubborn and rebellious and stiff-necked. And did they listen when the Lord spoke? No. So, so what a huge contrast you're beginning to see already here between this prophet and most of those exiles. There's something going on there where he is, he is expressly picked out by God and, and obviously the Lord was entrusting to him these things. So we're going to put on here um, the word of the Lord came expressly, I love that word, to him. Also in 1-3. So that gives us a whole lot just out of chapter 1 about what we know about our author. Now, we could add additional other details, but we're going to, for right now, we're going to stop right there because I want to move in and add more later. But I want to go at this point over to our historical uh, setting and develop that just a little bit more, okay? I want to show you how you can come to see the things which Kay took us into. But if you did not have the helps, the, these curriculum helps, you know, in front of you, how would you and I have come to basically have the same conclusions that we did come to anyway? All right, so when you look at the fact that he was by the river Kebar, or Kebar, what do you know about the river Kebar? Without, do, are many of you familiar with that in any way? Okay, so what would be your answer to how to figure out what was that River Kebar about? Well, you'd have to look at where it was. Maybe you'd need to do a map. You'd have to look up a map. It would be a little tough, though. You'd have to start with an alphabetical map somewhere. You'd have to have a pretty good atlas or concordance, correct? But that's certainly a possibility. You could Google it. Because we are so blessed to live in the era of history that we live in. You can Google this. Can you imagine years and years ago when they didn't have uh, Google? All right. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> Actually, Linda, I know. I remember when we didn't even have computers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the idea of the River Kabar. So did anybody happen to look that up? Yes. Yay, Jennifer. Yes. I know we got a map, but I'm asking, if you didn't have the map, for, first and foremost, and you, you were trying to come to understand what the River Kebar, because obviously it's giving you a, a geographical location, right? So one of the first things in order to set context would be to know where is that, right? 
So one of the first things you could do would be to do a word study, correct? Because the word study would give you a starting point, and then from there you could go do a map work, right? I mean, you could do the map first, but I think the easiest way is to do your word study first to give you location and then go do your map work. Does it kind of make sense to you? If you did it the other way around, it works too. It's just a little, a little more challenging. But I would say do a, a word study on the, on the word K-bar. Okay, so when you did your K-bar study, what did you find I didn't out? I did word study. I just looked at the map. Oh, you just went right to the map. Okay. Okay, okay. I'm sorry, what? That's... Very good. Iraq and the Persian Gulf, by the Iraq and the Persian Gulf, and it is a river there. So that places it in Babylon, correct? So that is, in fact, what you find out. When you do this word study, um, I'm just going to give you the number. It's number 3529. And when you look that up, it does tell you uh, it's K-A-B-A-R in the original language, K-Bar. And it says it's a Babylonian river near which many Israelite exiles settled. Very cool. Maybe the harbor or the royal canal of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what has that word study just done for me? It has set me in the, in the kingdom of Babylonia and has connected me at this point possibly to Nebuchadnezzar. So it's begun to open my mind to maybe in a, a historical setting in my thinking, correct? Ma- not fully, but it's starting to. So we can, uh, we can say then it's uh, in Babylon. And it said maybe, now this is interesting, maybe um, the harbor or they also called it the Royal Canal of Nebuchadnezzar. And I always do Nebuchadnezzar like that, Neb. I call him Nebi because it's too long to write out Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So this is what I learn when I do my word study. Okay? So that gives me, a, does that begin to already give me a historical context just by looking up, doing a word study? So if Kay, even if Kay had not taken us to see the things that she's shown to us, you could have done a word study and landed right where Kay ended up taking us to. Yes? What does the 3529 mean? Okay, that's when you do your word studies. There is a keying system. And Jennifer, if you'd like, I will sit with you and take you through and show you how to do a word study. Um, but it's too lengthy to try to explain in the classroom time. But it is the process. Have you ever used a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance yeah. and a Vines Expository Dictionary? Mm-hmm. Your Strong's gives you this number. When you oh, look okay. this word up alphabetically, it gives you this number, and this number then keys you oh, okay. over. I didn't know. Yes, it gives you what's called a transliteration, and here it is. It's the word K-A with the little funny check mark above it. Um, B-A-R, that's your transliteration. And then when you move into your various kinds of word dictionaries, you make sure you're looking at this word right here every time. Not the, the number, not necessarily, but you're <laughs> trying to find your transliteration, and then your transliteration will give you the correct definition. Okay? Okay, good deal. Okay, so besides the, by the river Kabar, what other historical setting... Uh, pieces of information do you see there in chapter 1 of Ezekiel? 
We have a king, don't we? The name of a king. Um, in the fifth year, I'm going to give me another. Give me another location uh, information though before you get to the king. In the land of the Chaldeans. Okay. In the land of the Chaldeans. C H A L D E A N S. And that's in chapter 1, verse 3. So again, I don't know how you marked it on your observation worksheets, but Kay suggested that you just double underline with green. I think that's what she told us to do. And that's how, that's how I'm going to do it for you here on the board. So again, we have another word that we, we could look up, right? To, it, to further develop our information. And once you do that, guess what you find out? It confirms this statement up here about the river Kabar, that the land of the Chaldeans and the river Kabar are connected. So we see the word here is number 3778. And it's, it's spelled funny. This is interesting. I can't pronounce it. So, okay, hold on. I'm just going to spell it. K-A-S-D-I-Y. Cast-D-I? Cast-D-D-I-Y? And then there's another one. K-A-S-D-I-Y-M-A-H. But the pronunciation is Cast-D-I. Isn't that interesting? Hmm? Yeah, casty. That's exactly what it says. Okay, and then of, of that, by definition, what is the land of the Chaldeans? Does anybody know? I remember the first time when I studied Daniel, and it talks about the land of the Chaldeans there, and I had no clue what that was. With the first time I studied it. It was many years ago, granted, but I didn't know what it was. So when I looked it up, I thought that was, I was just so, I guess, proud of myself that I had figured something out, you know, and then later I found that she takes us and we actually studied it. But I, it's very exciting, yes. Did that go to Genesis? Um, eventually you may, but... He did come from there, yeah. So initially he came from Babylon, that's correct. Mm-hmm. So that's another connection. So by definition, did anybody look it up? Okay, I'm going to skip and give it to you. Then it says, it's a synonym for Babylon. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so synonym for Babylonia in Babylon, maybe the harbor of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in the land of the Chaldeans, which is a synonym for Babylonia. And then a further developed uh, definition is a territory in lower Mesopotamia bordering on the Persian Gulf. So there you go. So now you've got a geographical location, and you could say then this. Basically, it's Babylon. Well, and that too, you're right. And there's going to be lots of times when Babylon is brought up. We can go into Revelation too. 
right? I mean, there's a bunch of times when Babylon is going to show up on the face of the earth, and God is going to deal with Babylon all the way to the end of the age. So once you find out that you're talking about Babylon, if you wanted to stop and do any kind of a study on Babylon, you would have your hands full. Because there is a lot of information in Scripture on the whole about Babylon. But for the sake of setting context, in this book, all we're trying to do is confirm a location. And what I'm trying to do is show you that even without Kay having taken you to, sh- to see it, through the map which she provided and through a, time, a chart timeline that she, sh- she gave to us, I want you to see the process by which you could have come to those same conclusions. Simply a word study would have done it. Once you have the word study and you confirm you're talking about Babylon, then you can go in and start looking on a map for these places like this river, uh, Kabar, right? All right, so you do your map work, you do your word study. Word study is one of the best things you can do for yourself. So now let's go on to that next point you mentioned. The next one you had said was about the king, right? That isn't very dark. Let me see if this one's any darker. It's in the... The fifth year, I'm going to skip the month thing. The fifth year of uh, King Jehoiakim. J-E-H-O-I-A-C-H-I-N. And it says, of his exile. Correct? So what is your first question? First of all. Well, may, maybe that's not your first question, but yeah, it's going to be one of your questions is what is talking about the exile, right? But, so then you're going to have to know who is this king, correct? Right. Who is the king? Who is this king, Jehoiakim? So again, guess what you can do? A word study. If you're not familiar with Israel's history, you, there's a couple of things you could do. You could also just simply go to a concordance, look up his name, and go to all those scriptures where he's mentioned. You may spend a lot of time, however, by doing it that way, but it certainly is the the next step in the process. But I would say the first step would be, again, a word study, because word studies give you your definitive definition, and then from there you develop on it, you build upon it, okay? So in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim, so when you do a word study on him, I learn about him that he is the next to the last king of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. Oh, okay, so the Babylonian captivity. So for sure, now we are talking about Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because he's talking about a Babylonian captivity. Now we know what even the exile means. We don't even have to guess at that. He's talking about, so he is the... I'm going to put it on here, what it says. He's the next to the last king of Judah. Now, this is another thing that for people who are not familiar with with Hebrew history is there's a distinguishing difference between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. That's a whole other Bible study, and we wouldn't have time to do that. But at least up front, what you have to understand is Judah is distinguished as it's written in the scripture according to what, whose kingdom they're over. This one is the king of Judah, okay? He's the king of Judah, um, and it's before the Babylonian 
captivity. Okay, so now we've got some really good context, don't we? And all we did was three word studies. One on the river, one on that land of Chaldea, and one on the king's name. And by doing three word studies, we have absolute fact that we are talking about Babylon. We're talking about the days of Nebuchadnezzar. We're talking about, about um, a captivity of the, the sons of Judah in this case, right? And later, it develops into being the sons of Israel on the whole. So we see the fifth year. So we got the historical setting is moving along quite well. And we haven't done anything that Kay showed to us. Now, the awesome thing about precept is in that she gives you additional insights. And so what did she do? She took us into some cross-references, didn't she? From the cross-reference in 2 Kings 23, now this is on day three, page six of your homework. If you want to go there with me. Okay, very, at the top of the page six, she talks about, she says, if Ezekiel was a priest, what was he doing in the land of the Chaldeans of Babylon? And did you see the reference of Jehoiakim's exile? So then she says, now I want you to read 2 Kings, starting in chapter 3, 28, and going through 25, 12. And then she says, also, pull out the chart that she gave you, which is so nice of her. Isn't that wonderful? Now, you would not have this if you were doing this on your own, but you could get to this all on your own just by simply drawing a timeline and start filling in points that you do know at this point. Yes. Oh, yeah, then you've really got it. <laughs> All these charts, for those of you who are not familiar with the inductive Bible, uh, pull yours up for me. I've got one too, but let's look at yours. This is a Bible that Precept Ministry puts out. It's called the Inductive Bible Study Bible. It's the New American Standard Translation, this one is. They also have one out in the New King James now which is a new thing. But the New American Standard Bible is the translation that you and I are working on with our observation worksheets. And so this Bible is taking care of, yeah, see the charts? <laughs> connects you with what kings are, just as this chart did that she gave to us, on, which is on page 223 in the appendix of your homework. There's a chart, it's called The Rulers and Prophets of Ezekiel. In there, she shows you the captivity period. She gives you the exact years. She also shows you who the prophets of Israel were at that time. Who does she actually show us on that chart are connected besides Ezekiel? Daniel, who is in, in the midst of the same time frame as, as Ezekiel, and who else? Jeremiah. Now, we also know, although it's not on here, who preceded Jeremiah concerning prophetic uh, utterances about exiles. Isaiah. So there was Isaiah first. He was before their captivity. Then there came Jeremiah just before the captivity and in all the way into the captivity era. Jeremiah is prophesying. And then Ezekiel is in there and Daniel is in there. So it shows us these contemporaries, which means that if you wanted to really fully develop your, your insight on that, you would have a lot of work to do, wouldn't you? You'd have to be going and reading Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel, right? You have a lot of a lot of historical information could be gleaned. Lots of time. Uh, the Ezekiel study or the Daniel study is six months, right? Um, I don't know how long the Isaiah course is. That's a, that's a whole other time frame. But then Jeremiah is another one. So 
it's really nice that Precept has provided that for you, and it is available in the um, Precept Bible that they have available. In the Inductive Study Bible. And I love it because that inductive, inductive Study Bible provides for you those large uh, columns, just like on your observation worksheets, that you can make your own personal notes. It leaves the titles of each of the chapters blank for you to determine what the titles are. It provides for you at the end an at-a-glance chart, which you and I are starting to be familiar with because we started one of those this week. And as you, as you get to a certain point then in your, uh, your Bible, it becomes really your own commentary in many regards. You get all your personal notes, all your personal insights, and the great thing about it is, how have you come to the conclusions that you are going to write in your Bible? Your own personal study. So when you write it in that book, you are, you are certain of what you know. What, you don't write into that Bible things you're not sure of, but you write in the things that you have personally studied. You did the word studies. You did the cross-referencing. You did the map research. Then you write in your own Bible. So that Bible becomes a treasure, a real treasure. I encourage that you consider buying one of those. Not that I'm trying to sell anything because I'm not, but I love mine, and I wouldn't give anything for it. Okay. All right, so now we're going to look at that Second Kings thing. Kay does take us to Second Kings. And one of the ways that you and I could have ended up in 2 Kings would have been to do what I said earlier about King Jehoiakim. You could have looked his name up in the back of your Bible in your concordance, right? And it would have given you all kinds of references where his name is mentioned. Am I correct? And once you researched all of those, eventually one of the places you would have landed is in this reference here of 2 Kings 23 verses 28 on all the way to 25, 12. Now, when you did your homework on, those, on that particular segment of passages, what did you see? How did you see it breaks down? It's a record of what? It's King Josiah. Okay, kings who did evil, and therefore there were consequences, correct? Okay, and what were the consequences? There was an exile that took place. The exile of who? Those Jews, right, that pertain to the message in, in the kings of it, which would be those from Judah, because the king is who? The king of what? Judah. Because we find that we find that as the, the last king of Judah before the Babylonian captivity is Jehoiakim. And then as you read through these verses here, you start moving forward, you're going to see king after king after king. And as the kings are listed, what seems to be one of the most common factors that's stated about every one of them? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. So there, so there, so historical context here for this book then is what is the problem with these people? (laughs) They're bad. (laughs) Very good. Stiff-necked and stubborn people, yes, and rebellious people, okay? So rebellious and stiff-necked, and their affront is against who? The Lord. That's exactly right. That's true. Isn't that interesting? Well, obviously, 
obviously, now, in, in, in an indirect way, it's, I don't want to take us off onto a rabbit trail of thinking exactly, but I do want you to just contemplate that since you brought it up. What does that tell you about God's knowledge and understanding of these leaders who come into power and out of power? He knows their heart, doesn't he? And he knows, he knew, he knows what, they, what they have done. He knows what they will do. He knows what they would do if they remained even, right? Uh, and also he says of, when he speaks of, of some of these kings, he says he did evil just as who? All his fathers before him, right? So, so you see then that the, the historical setting of this is that they, that they did evil, I'm going to do it this way, did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's one of the points that you would want to see on your historical setting, that that is the reason for the exile. Why are they where they're at by the river Kabar? Is the river Kabar in the land of Israel? No. No. Why aren't they in the land of Israel? Because... Because they did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? Okay, so then go back again to my question about what you see from uh, those two and a half or three chapters there from 23 through 25 that Kay gave us. How does it break down? Well, start with 2 Kings 24 verses 1 through 5. What do you see in 1 through 5? There's, there's Nebuchadnezzar and I'm say it again. Mm-hmm. Okay, there we got a father then that's made mention of, and it says about him that that um, what? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what we see here then is the first mention of the time when the kings of Israel come underneath the authority or the power or the governing of the king of Babylon, right? So then what do you see in 2 Kings uh, 24, starting in verse 6 through 17? We have another, another king mentioned, right? So we go from Jehoiakim to Jehoiakim, his son, right? And so we've moved on in history. We've got another king, and now what happens with this king? Isn't it very interesting, though? What it, what, it in, what it shows you, though, by looking at that is, okay, the first king goes into captivity, right? His son raises up, and where is the son? Is he in Babylon with his father? No, he's still back in Israel. And what does he start to do? To reign. And how long does he reign? For three months. And during that time of reigning, he does some things he's not supposed to, right? Who does he come up against? Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, the, the, their Lord, right? Yeah, he, it says he comes up against him, uh, the king. And so because of that, because he came up against, he did, first of all, he did do evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 9, according to all that his fathers had done. And then he says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem where that king is, and now he does what to him? He takes him into captivity. And when he does that, in verse 14, who does he take? Also. 
the elite, the, the craftsmen, the, va- the men's of valor. It says 10,000 captives, right? So what we're seeing then is a second king going into captivity. And there's a, there is a span of years between the first time when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar does this. The first time Nebuchadnezzar does this, it just talks about him going up and taking that king out. Now, that's not the full picture, is it? Does anybody know where you might go to see more about that very first encounter when he goes? Yes, very good. Celeste, woohoo. You get a star today too, my dear. So you're going to go to Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, because there you're going to see more insight about that first siege, and that is with Daniel and his friends, right? They are taken. It talks about the nobles and the, the best of the... Of the, uh, of the kingdom are taken into that captivity. The second time then here in uh, 2 Kings verses, uh, or 24 verses 6 to 17, we see the second siege, and in the second siege, they take more of the elite, and they take up to 10,000 of those nobles, right? So it's, it's distinctive, right? A sec- separate time is the second siege, and it's another grouping of these people from the land of Israel, Yes. You're right, he does die, but he talks about um, uh, what I wanted you to see was that, that there is a siege here that it removes him from the side. That's my point, yes, you're right. I probably misspoke on that because I didn't write all that. Right, okay. So Jehoiakim, it says of him that the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Armenians, bands of Moabites, the bands of the Ammonites, So he uh, sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Isn't that very interesting? So he's making reference in this first recording here in 2 Kings that the Lord had already prophesied that they were going to go into this captivity. So what might that prompt you to do as a student? How about back up a few chapters and see if there's any mentioned previously to this which i did um i'm you know it's too much information for us to go through and it wasn't in your homework so we're not going to go there but if you back up you're going to see that going all the way back king by king by king you're going to see where the there was a progressive uh, evil that was being done through these kings and through their leadership and at some point god began to say to them through the prophets there is going to be judgment right Okay, so sure, so he says of that, and he says, um, Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. So there's one king you can also go back and look up, right? In verse 3, do you see it? So there gives you another king's name you can back up to and see, well, what happened under Manasseh? That would be the first point of reference to why God is judging them. Okay, so historical setting is really being developed very well. Yes, Susan. Oh boy, does it? Mm-hmm. You don't. Absolutely. And don't you love the fact that the longer you study, the more you connect the dots. You start those the the intertwining of 
uh, previous studies with wherever we're at in the scripture, you always are able to start grabbing and pulling in. Now, for those who are just starting, it's a little tougher. And I can remember when, for me, just understanding the land of the Chaldeans, I felt so victorious. You know, now I'm at that place where Susan is. I'm going, yeah, but this goes all the way back to, to uh, yeah, Exodus and Deuteronomy and the giving of the law and the covenant God made through Abraham and that it would be a blessing or a cursing through the nation. And that it was a national covenant for these people to stay on their land. They must be what? Obedient to the Lord. And what we've seen so far in our historical setting of Ezekiel, what have they been? They have been disobedient, rebellious, and they have done evil in the sight of the Lord. And therefore, God is judging them. So what Kay took us to see then through this second king's um, scripture is that there were basically three sieges. The first one we saw in those verses 1 through 5. The second one we see in 6 through 17. And the third one we see starting in verse 18, going all the way through verse 12 of 25. So did you see that or not? If you didn't, I really recommend you open your Bibles right now and just pencil it in. First siege, drop down, make a little line on your page or something and say second siege. Then drop it all the way down and put another line and put third siege. Then what you can do is you can go back to this and get your dates. And pencil in your, the dates of those three sieges. Did anybody do that on a timeline for themselves? What did you find out about the three sieges? How, over what kind of a span of time did these sieges take place? Look at your map. 70 years? Uh, no, that's how long they were in exile. But what about the time? How, how long do you see the three sieges? Three stages of captivity on your map. Do you see it? Starting in 605 B.C. And it ended in? 586 B.C. What happened in 586 according to 2 Kings 24, 18 through 25, 12? Jerusalem itself and the temple were destroyed, right? So we see then that there's that final destruction. So here, what we see is three sieges took place. Three sieges of, of Israel or of Judah, right? The first one is in 605 according to the map. The second one is in um, 597, right? And the third one is in 586. Aren't you glad for, for people who actually did the research to get the exact dates for us? Because we don't have to do that. We're, we are trusting to some degree the research of some other people. But you yourself could actually find this information. How do you think you might go about doing that? If you were so particular about who you receive your information from and you don't want to just believe anybody, what, is, what does he actually say in the writings here in 1 Kings about where you might find information about these things? In the Chronicles of the Kings. So you might want to do some research about the Chronicles of the Kings and go in and research them, and you would probably find that there are datings written within those Chronicles. So that you could yourself come to see these datings. Now, where the complication, just for a point of, of interest on this, there's, good, there's complications sometimes on exact datings. Why sometimes it says, uh, you know, 805, 804, 803, or whatever, or in this case, 605, is it 604, is it 603, is it, you know, when you're trying to figure this out, why is there a little bit of variation sometimes? Well, because of so many different dating systems, right? 
the very, and the way the things are figured out, under whose system are you looking at, the Gregorian, or are you looking at the uh, Julian calendar, are you looking at the, through the Hebrew mind, are you thinking of it through the, the, the Babylonian mindset, are, when it talks about kings and their reigning, are you talking about their inauguration year, are you including that, are you including time when they co-ruled, or just when they became the king exclusive, there's all these variations that you have to watch for. So unless you want to become an expert on history and time and dating, which, by the way, I had one student in my evening group who was that way. His name was was T. T. Getterman, for those of you who know who T is, awesome guy, but he is is a numbers guy. So he used to keep me straight in the evening group. (laughs) But but if if you, like me, are not that interested, we're going to trust, for the most part, what we see on this map here, Otherwise, you can go do your research, and I can tell you that I'm certain that the research is very valid. And if there's any variation at all, it's slight, okay? So that, if that gives you any comfort at all. <laughs> okay, now, so we have three sieges according to this, and we have the dates given to us according to this. Now we can go back and we can look at another dating factor that's given to us about um, Ezekiel, and he says that it's in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, correct? When did King Jehoiakim go into his exile? Right here, right? King Jehoiakim. Exile. So if his exile was in 597 B.C. and... and The author says now, whoops, let me put this on here before I do that. This author says it is in the fifth year of Jehoiakim. Okay, I've got to spell it right. J-E-H-O-I-A-C-H-I-N. His Jehoiakim's exile. That's in in chapter 1, verse 2. So what date do we give this? All right, five, well, and why, how did you come to 592? There you go. Now, when, what, be, be, whoops. what becomes tricky is remembering that the numbers don't increase as years pass, but they decrease because we're looking at the calendar from that perspective. So 592 B.C. is our dating. Is everybody with me? It is before because it's, we are still here at King Jehoiakim's exile and we have not yet reached the 586 mark when that last siege takes place that we see shown to us in that Second Kings cross-reference. Isn't that wonderful to know that... I can move this. Is that better for everybody? Um, so this gives us a really good point of reference. We are in the middle of this time span. How, what is the time span from here to here? It covers how many years? No, the three sieges. 19 years. A total of 19 years for the sieges. Between 586 and 605 is a total of 19 years. So there's a span of approximately 19 years. And I'm giggling just a little because I heard someone say 21 because there's your variations in how people date things. There could be slight variations. And if your commentary gives you a slightly different, don't freak out. Just relax and be okay with it. But what we do see is according to what, what uh, the Precept Ministries map has given to us, that's the number of years that they say it took place over a span of time. So 
592 B.C. is our dating. Isn't that cool? Now we have good context going here. All right, so the author, this is when he is writing. Uh, he has a vision in this year, in 592 B.C. Are you good? Any questions at this point before we move on with more? We're going to look at why they went into their captivity just a little bit more. Through the first king's uh, references, we see that they are in exile. Why? Do you think it's important that we note that the, that the exile is pertaining to or directly linked back to the fact that they have offended the Lord? Well, yeah, but I do, uh, concerning the author, why is he in exile? Because of evil in the sight of the Lord. I think it also pertains to him. And, the only, and you're absolutely right, Craig. I, it's it's going to be over here that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. I have it right here. We see three sieges that took place. When it comes to the author, to understand that why is he among the exiles, it has to do because of evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay? So that's why I, I added it on to that list as well. There's no right or wrong on some of these points. You can, you can move things or not move things. And if, you, if your lists are not exactly like mine, it's okay. And it, actually, my personal lists that I did for my homework time are far more extensive. I mean, lots more information than we will ever put on a board in a classroom discussion because there's just no, not time to discuss every single point. Yes. Okay, so... No, I'm not. But he's among the exiles who are there. They are in exile because of evil in the sight of the Lord. And then if we want to go on to, with that, what do, how do we confirm that we're not talking about Ezekiel specifically? Well, what does it say about Ezekiel's relationship with God? That, that the hand of the Lord came upon him and that the word came expressly to him and that he saw visions that were of God, that God gave to him, that shows to you that there's something that, that's right with his relationship with God, right? But we do know that this is, a, I think, a point that really pertains to us today. What does this tell you then about God's dealing with sin in the world and how it can affect even the righteous. As he's dealing with the unrighteous, is there a potential for an effect on the righteous as well? Yes. Can we sometimes maybe suffer along with the ones who have done evil, even though we ourselves did not do evil? Yes. Do you see this in our nation? In our nation now. Okay. What, what about in your personal families? Do you see that even in your personal family dynamics? That sometimes there's people in your life, in your family, who have done wrong and you are paying the price for it. Oh, everybody's laughing. <laughs> We're all going, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah? They call it generational sin. 
Yeah, gen- right. Well, and it also has to do with the fact there's a tr- there's a truth reality that God is dealing with us, us the world, uh, on the whole, and He is dealing in a righteous manner to reveal Himself and to discipline those to draw them into the to the relationship with the Lord, into correct relationship with the Lord, and in the process we have people like in this first exile who went in that first exile, Daniel. Right? And his friends and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which were their pagan names given to them, right? Uh, and so when they went into their exile, they're all given these pagan names and they are put underneath the thumb and the authority of a king. However, when they were underneath the authority of the king, how did they behave? They still responded in a, in a godly manner. They still tried to maintain the purity of their walk to the very best that they could to the extent that what did Daniel need to do when it came time to eating up the, the king's table? He said he did not eat up their food, but he would only eat vegetables. Yes, but did he demand it? No, he, he asked. He asked. He negotiated. He was such a statesman. And the Lord did what on his behalf in that case? He gave him honor, right? So you and I can learn from that what? (laughs) Definitely go to the Lord. Okay. There you go. How does this, okay, and how does that tie back to our study that we just came out of in the book of James? What did it say in the book of James about how you're allowed to respond to those who are coming against you or who are oppressing you? Somebody remember? You're not allowed to sin in order to correct an error, right? As a Christian, we are not allowed to sin to, to do a right. You can't do evil to, to, quote, do good. You can't murder to correct someone else's evil deeds, in other words, all right? So in the case of this, the contextual setting for Ezekiel, what we see then is Ezekiel in his captivity and obviously walking righteously. And the Lord begins to reveal himself to Ezekiel and show to Ezekiel his word, his truth, his message to his people, right? All right, so we see then that they are in exile because of this. Um, in Second Kings, we see that repeated about that they, they had done evil. The kings and the people, I'm going to put that, and the people, um, meaning in general, had done evil. Now, I want to take you to one reference that we did not do. Jeremiah 25. I don't know if I've got the exact reference here or not. Let me see if I can find it. Someone go to Jeremiah 25 with me. I just want to make sure that, it's a, that we get this confirmed. Um, actually, almost the whole thing. Let's see. Let's just start in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah. Now, what we know from looking at our chart that Kay gave to us is that Jeremiah is a contemporary, right? He begins to prophesy even before Ezekiel and those come into their captivity and and Ezekiel begins to record his message, which we are studying right now. So this is Jeremiah and he's speaking and he says, um, concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, 
the son of Josiah. So these are a couple of names that we've already spoken of or, uh, thus far. These are kings of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So can you see how we're right into the context of where we're at and what we're looking at here? Which Jeremiah the prophet, prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, to Jeremiah, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Wow, that's really profound. Now, you can keep reading on this. It's amazing. The Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear, saying, turn now everyone from his evil way. So now, having looked at Jeremiah 25, what do we know about the evil that's being done? Is it just the kings? No, no it's all Everything. the people. So all the people, from their evil ways, your deeds, the dwelling on the land which the Lord God has given to you, and your forefathers forever and, and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them, to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And I will do you no harm. However, then he goes on and explains more. So you can read all of Jeremiah chapter 25. I'm going to give you that reference right here. That was not in your homework. So that's a little extra one here. And you can read a little bit more on that to expound on the historical context of this, that although in the first king's reference, all we really see is the mention of the kings doing evil in the sight of the Lord. But when you do additional study in cross-references, you see that it was all the land that was doing evil, not just the kings. Although the kings were uh, more culpable because they're the leaders, but there are still the, the people themselves. Yes, Heinz, are you? No, you're not. You're just shaking your hands. Okay, sorry. <laughs> he's just doing his little thing over there okay all right so now what we want to do is we want to go we've got the historical setting down okay so what we want to do now is go back to the author and finish developing this just a smidgen and what time is it we're good okay let's go into chapter two and let's see god instructs ezekiel in, in, uh, or God continues to speak to him, right, in chapter 2. Give me, since we're trying to develop our understanding about the author and his relationship with the Lord, what does the Lord title or give a title to uh, Ezekiel in this chapter? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. Now, that's very interesting. Called, and I'm going to still put it in here, Son of Man. Did anybody look at that at all this week? I know it wasn't in the homework and we had plenty to do, but did anybody happen to look that up okay son of man by definition um is um ben uh adam a A d a m adam ben adam ben meaning man adam meaning associate or affiliated with the created human man okay interesting created human man so he is the son of the created human beings, right? What being have we already looked at previously to chapter 2? Have we seen another living being? Have we? 
the four live the four living beings and they are they are distinctive apparently and so here we see a title given this is why i say these titles anytime you see titles mentioned to you in scripture do some research on them because they are always important and very very insightful from the perspective of setting context here what we see then is simply by looking at this title son of man that he is referring to him as a human being And he calls it, it is the word Ben, A-D-A-M, Adam, which, which is Adam, okay? So he is of the, he is a human being. So can you see a contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 2 then? Mm-hmm. Of a being which is being presented. There is the four living beings and then there is the human being which is, which is listed for us. Interesting, huh? I think it, I thought it was very insightful, and I actually found when I continued to to read my um, word studies, they had like twelve different options. How many of you know that when you're looking at your word studies, and it says one, two, three, four, five, there's lots of options for you to choose from. Which one is re- being referred to? Correct. What should you always try to look for? As far as just definitions a scripture reference that ties it directly to the word that you're looking at, right? So guess what? When I did, I found one. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse (laughs) 1. Voila! Aren't you happy? You want to know what it says? A person who is in the the class of humanity as contrasted to other classes of supernatural beings. Well, how about that? Isn't that amazing what you can learn when you do a word study and you keep, and what you got to do is remember the, the principles or the disciplines of what you're working on at the moment. In the case of, of word studies, if you can find specifically where it says that verse scripture that you're looking at, bingo. Now you can't always, in which case then you have to look at all your options and decide which one fits the context of what you are looking at. It was in, in my word study when I did my Vines and my Strong's okay. word studies, okay? So the word study number was 1201. That's it. Let me get my observation worksheet here because I think I, I broke it down here. Whoop, there went my, my drawing. You don't want to see that. <laughs> um, hold on. I got it backwards. What did I do with my... Eraser. I don't know. Oh, I see. It's on the floor. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me give you my correct numbers here. Okay, so the Son of Man is num- the Son is number eleven twenty one, and Man is number one twenty. So it's that Ben Adam. Okay, and he, and then he and so in that word study at the I looked for the reference to Ezekiel, and I actually found Ezekiel two verse one. So I was really happy about that because it really gave me a clear, a very clear uh, insight. And when they did it, it actually just confirmed what I had already come to a conclusion on. When I saw that this was the, uh, t- basically the definition of it was that he was calling him human being. Then I went, oh, then he says, as contrasted to the other. I went, oh, well, of course, we just looked at that. And it, it all flooded to my mind immediately, right? Uh, but see, the word studies help. Yes. I know, a big-time rabbit trail. You can go on. Son of man. 
That's true. And in that case, it's a different title, but in different context. And we, remember, I said this was, this was the ninth definition. And you can look at all the nine things. One that will refer back to Jesus being the son of man, man capitalized, is going to be distinctive. And I love that about the original languages, although it's basically going to say that he's human. But the, the title, son of man, when it's affixed to Christ, has a definitive characteristic about who he is. Right? Yeah. Okay. It's just interesting that in Jonah, I think that's the only place that where the prophet is called son of man. Yeah. He's the only prophet, so the fact that God used that term of Ezekiel and Jesus used that himself. It is. But I also think it's really interesting that in the context of this book where he opens showing us four living beings and then he contrasts it with a statement that he is the human being is really insightful. And honestly, what can we tie that back to? The creation. And how God distinguished things according to their baramen, right? Their, their, their type or whatever. Or back to Colossians chapter 1. Where do we, we learn in chapter 1 about God's creation? Where do all things come from? God himself created all things. Principalities, powers, whether in the heavens or upon the earth. Everything that is in existence, God created, was created for him and by him, right? And so, therefore, that establishes one thing in our mind right away when we go back to start looking in more detail about the four living beings, which we're fixing to do now. When you look at the four living beings, what do you know about those four living beings? God created them. God created them. And, and what else do we learn about them? They're distinctive, aren't they? They are distinctive from the human being. They are something different, but they are God-created. Isn't that awesome? Little, I know it's minor, but yet, boy, it's really, actually, I think this is where it starts to take these little things and it just kind of, I don't know, for me, it just expounds my thinking on the writing of God, the articulation, the things that he informs us about, the the value of knowing that and discerning that, and also how that helps to equip me to battle the lies of this world. Because when the world starts to feed you with the subject of evolution and of... How many of you have read some of the um, human insights about who these four living beings are in chapter 1? What are some of the theories out there about what these are? Yes, aliens for Pete's sake. And if not aliens, aircraft, (laughs) right? I mean, we've heard all kinds of weird things, correct? So as we anchor ourselves in the truths of God's word about his created beings, some of them are like the four living beings. They have a distinguished, obviously a distinguished place, assignment, role, right? a place in God's created affairs that pertain to man. And as we look at that and then see the distinguishing place of man, human beings, it's, it's just so rewarding and so uh, powerful. I think you, be, you become authoritative in the way that you're able to speak about these things with others and say to them, no, that is not true because God created those things for this purpose. Right? And God created these things for this purpose. 
And if you go back even to the, the Genesis account, and it says, and all things on the earth, not the heavenly things, but upon the earth, pre- produce or reproduce after their own kind. And they can't even cross-procreate. So there's no possibility that a, a fish produced a dinosaur or something like that, because it's not possible, right? All right. Okay, so now let's go on. Let's go to... Um, what, do you, what else did you learn in chapter 2 about the Lord? Just throw some things out, and we're not going to necessarily write all these things down. I just Seven want... times he mentioned the word rebellion. Okay. So in chapter 2. I underlined that in black because it just kept... It was a thread. Okay. So when you... I am going to write that down then. It says, it says that the, then the people of the exile were rebellious. And can you give me a verse on that? Oh gosh, one three. Chapter two, verse three. Twice it mentioned. Okay, good. That's close enough. Yeah, all of them, all of them. So in chapter two, on the whole, what we learn is that he is a he is in exile, and the people of the exile were rebellious. Okay, but that doesn't make Ezekiel rebellious. What we see about Ezekiel is that the Lord is speaking through him. And in chapter 2, what else do we learn about uh, uh, Ezekiel? What does God do in chapter 2 concerning him? He speaks to him. He speaks to him and he tells him to do what? Stand up. To stand up. And what does he actually make him? He calls him a prophet. He says, I'm going to send you to my people as a prophet. So what might you want to do if you don't know much about the prophets? Do a word study on prophets and do a little bit of research on them. And on the whole, what do we know about prophets? What, what is the purpose of a prophet? They speak, of God. They speak for God. So when you made your list, did you see that he was telling him, you speak for me? What do you speak? My word, mm-hmm. right? So we see then that ex- this, in conclusion, what we see about Ezekiel is he's not one of the sinners that are in exile for rebellion. He is there as God's spokesman. He is, he is going to act as a priest on behalf of them and as a prophet on behalf of them. So let's put up here a priest and a prophet. And prophet comes from where? What, is that chapter 2, verse 5? 2, 5. Okay. So he's a prophet. All right. Now, um, he's also called what in three? Let's go into chapter three. Further on, God gives him a very distinguished role. What does he say of him there? He's to be a watchman. That's really cool. Did anybody research what the watchman does? It's just a figurative almost or an imagery thing for for him. God speaks to Ezekiel through the mindset of people. And what, what does a watchman do? Observe. He observes. Warns. He warns. And did he actually say of this watchman that he would warn them? So he actually does do exactly what a real watchman does, right? And a watchman will do, where does a watchman generally stand? In a tower at a high vantage points, right? He stands up high in a vantage points. And what does he do? He observes the whole, correct? You know, I, you know, this is very interesting. He said of, of his role among the people that he was to speak the word. And, and what was he not to do? Because these people are stubborn, huh? Pardon? 
That's right. Do not worry about their response. You tell them whether they listen or not, right? Yeah, I got to tell you, this chapter 3 was my call by God. Early, early in my faith walk, this was the chapter God brought me to. And when I read it, the Lord just, I could feel it. I mean, the Lord just impressed it upon me very strongly that this was my call. This was what God wanted of me. And uh, not that I'm a prophet, because I'm, I'm a teacher, obviously. But, but the teacher, just like the prophet, their role is to teach the people and to tell them truth it, to the best of their ability. Does that always mean that they do it perfectly? No, but, but they try. Their heart is they want to, okay? And I want to. But I can tell you that this terrified me at first. And it took me many years to really step into it. And, and appropriately so. It takes a lot of years to train for, for doing, you know, some of these positions like this. But um, I can tell you that when I read these words, he said, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. Then he goes on and he talks about what's required of Ezekiel. What does he say to him? What's required of him? What's his responsibility? He has to, really, because if he doesn't, what happens? The blood is back on him. Now, there is another study, which she didn't take us into, but we're going to talk about that. Hopefully, she'll develop it later for us. But the idea of the blood requirement, that, that, there, that the blood is required of him. Now, when you think about the blood and about responsibility and about a requirement in relationship with one another, what does that bring you back to at the fundamental level? Covenant. Covenant, covenant, covenant. Because you're in covenant with one another, there is a responsibility. We have a responsibility to one another, right? So tell me, does this command that we're looking at here in in Ezekiel, that God called him to be a watchman, that he had a requirement to warn Israel of, of their sin and warn them of coming judgment, do you think that applies to you and I today? Yeah. Okay, that there's a responsibility to have iron sharpening iron do you like it when people come to you and say you shouldn't be doing that that's sin no you don't like it however what might it this information as we're just looking up this and, and thinking on this what what might this do for you and i challenge us to say i need to maybe listen to my brothers and sisters in christ sometimes if they come to me challenge me that i've got a bad attitude or that i am maybe dabbling in something I shouldn't be dabbling in, or maybe I'm going to do something, or I'm thinking something, or I'm speaking something that I shouldn't, and they correct me on it. Hopefully they're doing it in gentleness and love. But even if they aren't, do you remember David? When David was reviled by one of the people that called him a dog and all that kind of stuff, and, he's, and, he, the, and the people were going to kill him on David's behalf, and David said, no, far be it. He says, what if it's from the Lord? A friend of mine told me one time that we need to listen to others because we can't see when our tail lights are out. Yes. Oh, I like that. That's good, yeah, Jennifer. I that was good. I was really good. You cannot see when you're dead. No, you cannot. Yes, Angie.
Yeah. The church isn't going to like them so much yeah. when they tell them. Right. 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 Exactly. That's correct. That's correct. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I can tell you from the perspective of, and you know this to yourself because you also lead, but sometimes when you're a leader and you're trying to teach or you're trying to proclaim truth, people will come against you. They become angry when they think you've said something wrong. And instead of giving you the benefit of the doubt and maybe you've misspoke or considering the fact that maybe they are in sin and they've got it wrong, right? They don't like it. And so you take a beating as a leader. And this is what Ezekiel was against. But what I love about what, what we, we are revealed to us about Ezekiel is that God made him a stubborn man. So how many of you have ever had stubborn leaders? Yeah, me too. I, and I guess what I think I am a little bit stubborn. So, but you know, I think that, that what is exciting to me is the insights that we're seeing here about who God chooses and he places them in places of leadership or in this case has to be a prophet. And God, God's hand was upon him strongly. The spirit filled him and lifted him up. He, you see this relationship between God the Father and God's leaders. And if, if you know that to be true as a principle... Even though your leader may not always be 100% right, you need to revere the fact that God placed them in leadership. And unless they are doing something which is, what is the right word, like um, an affront to God, unless they are actually in sin and you know it, and, and it's clear. Otherwise, if you just don't like the way they're handling things, you need to remember they are the ones that God has given a hard head to and put them in that place. And here it says to Ezekiel, you tell them whether they want to hear it or not. And if you don't tell them, I'm going to require it of you. I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to hold you responsible. So we see in 2 Timothy, Kay took us to chapter 4, verses 1 and 5, where it says there that we are to preach the word in season and out of season to be ready to give, uh, you know, an, uh, an answer to our faith. That's right. I find it really interesting here that he talks about you should eat the scroll. And mm-hmm. it's almost like he, you just don't, you have to digest what God says. I sure do. Okay. Out. I want to I go another step further with that. That's a very good point, Jennifer. What is it that he ate? What did it say in the chapter before? How did it describe the scroll? The scroll? What was in that scroll? You marked two words. Lamentations and woes. And how did he say that it tasted to him? Sweet. And when he went out, what did he say about his emotions about this? He was embittered, basically on behalf of God. So what does that tell you about? Even though woes and lamentations is what God was proclaiming for those who were rebellious. Would you say that you and I feel the same way about the, the sin that's going on in the world around us? Do we have that same kind of disdain for sin to the point that we see God's righteous judgment against it? And that, yes, Lord, it is right. I think we often feel so much compassion for the sinner that we forget the righteousness of God. 
And there might be a message in this for us to understand that Ezekiel, he ate the woes and he ate the lamentations and he basically said in his spirit, it is right, Lord. And he went out with an embitterment against what he saw in the rebelliousness of the people around him. Not an unrighteous anger, but a righteous anger, which took with him what? The word of the Lord, because that's what God, he ate. Yes, he ate the woes and yes, he ate the lamentations. But he also says, you speak my words to them, right? When you made your list, it's my words. So he went out empowered by the truth of God's word, understanding the severity of the consequences. So he was really emboldened. God gave him the attitude and the the personality that he had, which was that he was he himself was stubborn and hard-headed, but he was stubborn and hard-headed before, uh, for God, on behalf of God. Isn't that, isn't that exciting? Then she took us into Acts 20, and we see another man that was just like that. Who was it? Paul. Oh, Paul. He says, he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then at the end of that passage, he says in 26 and 27, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of men. Do you see that same responsibility of blood? That brings it forward to you and I today. We have the same responsibility that Ezekiel did to protect God's word, to speak God's word, to warn the people, to be a watchman. Even if God didn't give you this verse as your calling, as he did for me, as he certainly did for Ezekiel specifically, it doesn't matter. According to what we see in Acts, Acts is saying that we all have that responsibility. And he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And then in Matthew 28, the last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he descended was what? Go ye therefore into all nations. All right, now we're not going to have a lot of time, but just tell me what you saw on your, on your pictures. Pull them out. I want you to do a show and tell for the next couple of minutes at your table, ta- looking at what you did together as we prepare to put the video on for us today. Thank you guys for hard work. I think we did a pretty good job. I didn't get to the chapter themes. We'll do that next week, okay? I didn't have time. We did as much as we could possibly squeeze. The chart, the chart will come out either tonight or tomorrow.